0: Well good morning everyone. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer then I'll tell you uh, what we're going to be doing today and and then we'll go from there. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your mercy to us, Lord. We desperately need it. We're reminded every day and every week and every month of what a mess this world is. Lord, it burdens our hearts and we see the chaos in our country and the immorality and everything else And it's easy to get distracted, but Lord, we thank you for your promises, for the truths of your word, and that we can understand that despite all the noise and the chaos that's going on around us, we have peace with you, for which we are eternally grateful. And I pray, Lord, for our time together this morning in your word. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear, and I pray that you'll help me to be able to articulate things clearly in a way that's understandable. We love you, Lord, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to be teaching. I'm not actually going to get back into 2 Peter yet, and I apologize for that. One of the challenges with my schedule and my life, and it is what it is, I'm not complaining, it just is the nature of things, is events come up that are unpredictable, like being sick for a week and things like that. And so I am a little bit behind on my studies of 2 Peter, and with the men's conference this weekend, which was... Uh, Several of you men were there, I think you would agree it was a wonderful time. It was well done. God was very gracious to us with our speakers, and it, it was just a blessing. But normally my study time for class is on Friday and Saturday, and that wasn't happening this week. So I'm going back to a message that I did many years ago. How many of you were attending Lakeside in 2008? Okay. How many of you remember exactly every sermon from Sunday morning of that year? Okay, okay, so, okay. Um, So I'm going to speculate that you're not going to remember everything I said in 2008 as I bring it forward. And if you're new to Lakeside, you haven't heard it at all, so it's wonderful. Um, It still is going on the same theme that I've been talking about. What has burdened my heart, and it continues to burden my heart, and I have a feeling until I'm in heaven it will burden my heart is the prevalence of deception and deceit and counterfeits to the truth that infiltrate the church. That's why I picked Second Peter because it's so strong on telling us of who we have in Christ but also of warning us against the dangers of false teaching. And so I hope to resume that as quickly as possible, perhaps even as early as next week, but as I was thinking, how can I continue on the same theme but still be dealing with something that I've already studied and that I could just brush up on? And it led me to two messages I did on Second John. So, if you open up your Bible, Second John is one of those one-pagers way in the back of the Bible, right? A couple of books before um, the Book of Revelation. But I'm just going to spend some time talking from a few verses of this book. Now, there's only one chapter in the book, so I'll just reference verse numbers, but it's the only chapter, and I'm not going to get as far of this as I thought I would. As I was going through my notes again, I realized I'm only going to cover part of this, so I don't know how far I'll get. So probably since I'm going to have... um, Part of a message, at some point, I'll finish this, but I think even what we teach on today will be complete in and of itself. And if I can go really, really fast, maybe I'll get through the entirety of it. But second John is dealing with the issue of deception and counterfeits and false teachers. I think about the fact that we have an election coming up. It's not going to be here soon enough because I'm tired of the ads. But it's coming up soon, and you can't open the paper without reading somebody either mocking or complaining about voter fraud, or it's going to be a stolen election, or we can't trust what's going on. And it really is a mark of our times. Nobody believes anything. Why? Because counterfeits and deception are everywhere. And that's just in the secular world. In the secular world, counterfeits, and I just read recently of a museum with a big collection of fancy works that they were all frauds so they had that and um, so in the secular world it's maybe it's a selection or maybe it's money or maybe when you have a Bernie Madoff who has really big counterfeiting fraud with a pyramid scheme you go to prison but at the end of the day those kind of damages pale in comparison to the damage to the body of Christ if you have a counterfeit teacher leading God's people astray. That person, if they worm their way into the midst of a body of believers, can do far more damage than somebody with an election or with counterfeit money or with counterfeit art or with anything else. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, I think it's a good Summation of the danger and of the burden that is constantly on my heart as one of the shepherds of this flock. Says this in chapter 20, beginning at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Again, this isn't a warning about all of those evil people outside the church. That's a warning about evil people that spring up from within, including within Christian leadership. So today we're going to spend some time talking about this issue. In fact, the entirety of the book is dealing with false teachers and how to treat them. But at the beginning of the book, it's dealing with truth. In other words, you should see these things in someone's life if you're dealing with the genuine. And years ago, I looked up, and I had a link the article, and I didn't bother to try and go back through it. But it was basically saying that to determine counterfeit money, and I think the article was from Canada, they train the people solely with real money. They don't deal with false money. They, they don't pass out all the various forms of counterfeit. All they do is they keep dealing with the real thing because if you know the real thing, then a counterfeit is just immediately spotted. And that really becomes the key for us. That's why I love Second Peter. And again, I'm not teaching there, but Second Peter is grounding you in the truth and warning you about error, but it's also grounded in what we know to be true. And that's how you spot a counterfeit. You look at their life. You look at their teaching. Does it comport with what the scriptures say and what God says, or is it something else? The problem is, deceivers are good. They're clever. And the reality is, if someone is truly a counterfeit, they're probably not even genuinely a believer, but that doesn't mean they do less damage. In fact, they do more damage. That's the wolf that's among the sheep wreaking havoc and destroying so I'll give a little context for Second John. And if I say Second Peter in referring to Second John, it's just an error of the tongue. I've meant Second Peter the times I've said it, but I realize that I'm getting the two conflated in my thinking, and so if I say the wrong thing, just hear Second John no matter what else I say. But it's one of the short books of the New Testament. Philemon, Third John, Jude, or the other books in the New Testament that are just one chapter. They're short letters. In fact: Second John and Third John, and I'm no Greek scholar, but people that understand it would tell you they're the two shortest books in the New Testament, less than 300 words each. Both inspired by God, but they're very brief. And Second John was a personal letter, as we'll quickly see. The Apostle John is the author. He wrote First, Second, and Third John, and the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation, and he was writing a personal, heartfelt letter to a woman. In all likelihood, perhaps she even either hosted Christians in her home, perhaps it was a house church. But this woman was a genuine believer, and as I'll say in a moment, she had adult children that were likely believers, and he was encouraging them in the faith. At the time he was writing, he was the last of the disciples, all the others were gone. But he was writing because he was concerned about this dear saint and her family, and all those who were in her, probably in her local church. Now, she wasn't pastor, of course, but in all likelihood, because of something said later, she was a hospitable woman who opened her home to other believers. Again, he wanted to warn them about the type of people that Paul describes who are very good. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 and 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So he's writing to expose those who are disguising themselves. Meaning, by definition, they're pretending to be something they're not. And so he's going to hold up the genuine, even in a few introductory words, and we can use that ourselves as we're evaluating whether someone has genuine faith. So follow along with me. I'm going to read the first six verses of this book, which are really a greetings and a letter, a little bit of exhortation, and we'll see how far we get through, and I'll tell you what my outline is in a moment. Second John, verse 1. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, who I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father." Now I ask you, lady, not as though we're writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. If we were to continue on, and maybe at some point I'll complete the loop and complete this study. The second part, John deals with some specifics about the counterfeit, But he starts with true believers and what they look like. He starts with a description of true righteousness, of someone who's in the faith. And so, as we are going to walk through this today, the outline is simple. I don't know if I'll get through all of it. But from these few verses, I think we can see four marks of genuine faith. Four marks of genuine faith. And certainly, we can use these as we talk to others. But also, we can use these as we look at people who claim to want to be teachers or who are teachers, I can tell you just from watching the world around us, there are many men who are standing up in pulpits every day who don't even meet these minimal characteristics. So, let me go through this, and I'll start with this. Four marks of genuine faith. The first mark is this, you love the elect. You love the elect. John begins in this greeting to the elder, to the chosen lady, and her children. Now, this is likely referring to John just as his role as one of the apostles. But it's clear because of the generality used that he was very familiar with this person. He didn't have to explain this is which elder. He knew she would understand, oh, this is John. And the word chosen lady could also be translated the elect. Both of the words are really synonymous. It means the Greek word elect, chosen so in this context, it's clear John, as an elder, as the elder in her life, is writing to believers, the chosen lady and her children. And over and over in Scripture, and used in this context, the word chosen or elect is referring only to believers. So he's writing to believers. They're, these are true Christians. And while I think that John is writing to a particular woman there are people who debate this well it could be that the lady is referring to a church and it's just a, a figure of speech and if you were to read commentaries on this there's reputable scholars that land everywhere but it seemed and let me add this because it's important the lessons the same whether it's to a church or to the lady there, nothing changes in the message of the book but I think from the context from some of the from the familiarity that he is writing to a prominent Christian woman who is gifted with hospitality, who has adult-believing children, and they are a key family in a local church, and he wants to protect them. And it's possible that her house was a meeting place for Christians, perhaps even a local church, because they didn't have church buildings per se. It was a house church, so perhaps that was the case, but that's a little speculative. At the bottom line... He is saying the elder to the chosen lady and her children. And then he says, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. There's a lot here, but in its summation form, what really matters is that John is telling them, I love you, but he loves them in a specific way. This isn't just an emotional feeling because they were friendly or whatever. It's in the truth. It's in the gospel. This is Christian love and fellowship. It's truth that undergirds everything in their relationship. He loves them in truth, and he has a continuing love for them. And it's different than anything else. I think all of us here have unbelieving friends or family. And I think we'd say we love them. One of my best friends, I met him in law school before I was even married. He and I talked multiple times. I'd, I'd call him, apart from my wife, my best friend. But he's not a believer. He's a good friend. I would do anything for him, he would do anything for me. But It's different. Because our friendship isn't based on the truth of the gospel. I share the truth with them, but it's different. This is that deep, intimate love that's grounded in the common beliefs in Jesus Christ. It's not transactional of what they can do for me. This is just a love because they are chosen by God. And it's interesting because John says, I love you. But he also says, and all those who know the truth love you. And that really is getting close to my point. In fact, it is my point. His conveying to them his love is accompanied by this idea that every other believer loves them as well. We don't know the full context to know whether perhaps they were going through some difficult times and they needed some reassurance, But the overarching point is that all those who know the truth of the gospel love all those who know the truth of the gospel. It's everyone. Everybody that knew them would have loved them, but not just in some superficial feeling, but in that love that says we're all part of God's chosen. We're all part of God's elect. And this isn't a love that can fluctuate with other things it's not just the type of normal shared interest or mutual desires if you like to play golf it's easy to talk to people that like to play golf if you like sports it's easy to talk to other sports fans those are something totally different this is love that God gives to all of his children to be shared with all of his children as expressed in John 13, familiar words of our Savior, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this isn't something that's an add-on or additional or optional. This is part of being a disciple. This is critical. And while at times we can look at a greeting of a letter as a throwaway, it really does become a central part of this. Again, it's not just generic love. It's love, verse 2, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. The spirit who indwells us is referred to in Scripture as the spirit of truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So again, Jesus knows what kind of people we are. You think of the times that the 12 disciples were fighting with each other, who's the greatest elbowing people? We do that. We're, We're sinners. But in the context of this, we're being reminded by God that we have a duty and the ability given by him to love other believers. And it's always centered around the truth. You come to Lakeside, I'm sure, not just because you enjoy the coffee or that really good cake on the pedestal that I don't know what it was, but that was really good. (laughs) But that's not why you're here. You're here because Steve Kreloff, for 40 years, opens up the Word of God and feeds us a banquet of truth. You're in class, I assume, because you like not just praying with one another, but you like hearing a reinforcement of other words of truth. All of this is how we love one another because of the common understanding that we've been given by the Lord. 1 John four nineteen, John said we love because he first loved us. Verse 20 of that same chapter, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So, One of the marks of a Christian is that they love other Christians. It's an odd thing, but you know, there are pastors that go into the pulpit and then they go hide in their office. Not just for preparation, because they don't care. They don't want to be a part of the people. One of the things that's always impressed me by Steve, he prepares diligently studying every week. He's up in his study preparing for morning and evening. But if somebody calls the church that needs him, he always takes their call. He may say, I need to call back a little later, but I've been impressed that no matter how important the word is, it's not more important than God's people because He loves you. And He shows it over and over again. Again, it doesn't mean that we're always happy with one another. We're sinners. Sometimes we're arguing with one another about who's the greatest in the kingdom. But as we look at people claiming to be Christians, part of the red light flashing is when they don't want to be around other believers when they don't like other Christians. When you talk to somebody that's not looking for good theology, but they're on the umpteenth church in a row, because for whatever reason, all those other churches are filled with people that don't like them. Somebody that can't get along with believers, it's a warning sign. It's a red flag. I'm thankful that all of you who I know Love other believers, and it comes out. But if you don't love other believers, you don't have the love of God. So, four marks of genuine faith. First, you love the elect. Second, you understand the gospel. You understand the gospel. Now, that's going to seem so obvious that you say, well, wait a minute, that's a throwaway point. I can't tell you the number of times since I've been a believer that if you ask somebody their testimony, they don't know how to give a testimony. And I don't mean some theological treatise. What I mean is you ask them, how do you know Jesus? And they say, I grew up in church. Well, when did you become a believer? Well, I've always believed in God. When did you meet Jesus Christ as your Savior? I've loved going to church. When did you repent of your sins? Well, I've always tried to do my best. There is a lot of that everywhere. (laughs) Okay? Um, Well, interesting. Um, Knock and the door will be opened unto you. so, So, this is a personal letter. And he, in a few words, really summarizes all of the gospel and he deals with that truth. He says in verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And again, this is just introductory words, but as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And it's interesting because this is similar to how Paul introduces some letters, but there's a difference in the phraseology. Many of the phraseologies of Paul are more along the lines of a prayer. I'm praying for these things for you. Here, he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It's a present reality. Grace, mercy, and peace. This idea isn't original to me. John MacArthur talks about it. But these terms really can summarize the plan of salvation. And if we understand these three terms, then I pray that we do it really summarizes the type of truth that should characterize every person claiming to be a follower of Christ. The first word is grace. One commentator says, grace is the free and unmerited favor of God bestowed upon guilty and unworthy individuals in and through Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says, grace views sinners as guilty and undeserving. Many of you men here, when I ask you, Every time I see you, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. There's a reason, because we deserve the punishment of the guilty. Because we are guilty. If you don't understand that you're guilty before God as a sinner, then you've never come to faith in Christ. That's one of the great shortcomings, I think, of American cultural Christianity. I think, it, well, I don't think, I know. Number one, because I used to believe it, but... You see people all the time that think this way. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I think you put me on the scale. The good's going to outweigh the bad. I'm okay with God. That person doesn't see themselves as guilty and undeserving. They don't see themselves as a rebel before God. Isaiah 64, 6 describes righteous deeds like filthy rags. Titus 3 Verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Couldn't be clear from Scripture that it's not going to be a balancing act. Make sure your good outweighs the bad. That's a works-based salvation. And yet that's a popular view. In fact, I've listened to preachers that everything they're doing isn't about Jesus dying on the cross. It's about making you be better. It's like a pep talk if you've been in a corporate environment. Grace is something all true believers understand because all true believers know that apart from God's grace, they have no hope. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is very familiar. I read this all the time in different contexts because it's so powerful, this picture that Jesus painted in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 11 of Luke 18, the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That really does sound like a lot of our culture. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, The sinner, that tax collector knew he needed grace because he knew who he was. And he knew he needed not just grace, but he needed mercy. And that's the second part of what John shares with us. Mercy describes God's pity and compassion for those in trouble and distress grace is something you need mercy is the answer that's what repentance at the moment of salvation is god give me your mercy continuing in titus chapter 3 beginning in verse 5 he saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's it. He saved us according to his mercy. And that's how we get peace, which is John's third point. Grace, mercy, peace. It's the inner tranquility that we can have because of our faith in Christ. Certainly life is a tempest and we're commanded to pray and to not worry and all of those things. But at its core, peace is the result of God showing grace and mercy to an undeserving sinner. Part of the challenge and part of the source of so much counterfeit teaching, I think, in America is a wrong view of who people are. In theological terms, it's poor anthropology. Here's what most people in their natural state think is, well, we're basically good. I've witnessed to someone for 30 years and at its core... I mean, 30 years, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep witnessing. Actually, forgive me, 29 years. I was saved in 1993, and we're in 2022. So 29 years, almost 30. And the stumbling block always comes back to this, but I'm a good person. They look around America, and they're like the tax collector. I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that. And if I tell them they're an enemy of God, they would protest. I don't even care. People think they're Switzerland. Most of you know enough history with World War II, Switzerland was neutral. They weren't invaded by the Nazis, they were the ones sitting on the sidelines. And that's what people think. Oh, I'm not hostile to God, I'm just neutral. There is no such thing as neutrality with God, we are his enemies. Romans 5, beginning of verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. People don't understand that at times they need peace because they don't know they're at war because they're enemies and they're deceived. Someone who's not a believer is not neutral. They are an enemy of God, regardless of their behavior in comparison to other Americans. But for those of us who are saved, we understand when someone has peace with God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the Apostle John is talking about. And he's not saying these are prospective things. He's saying these are our reality. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. There's no doubt. There's no question. I read a comment by John Stott. It says, put together, peace indicates the character of salvation, mercy, our need of it, and grace, God's free provision of it in Christ. And John makes clear that similar thing. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. The source is God, God the Father, God the Son. It addresses this distinct personality of God the Father and God the Son in the mystery of the Trinity, but also indicates they're both God. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and they're both involved in these blessings flowing down. And we understand from other scriptures that God the Holy Spirit is God, and He's a part of this as well. The point is this this brief greeting is a beautiful summation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you find people who are teaching and they're not teaching, first of all, that you need peace with God, they're false teachers again <laughs> when you look at lakeside you know we're a little church in the middle of in the scheme of eternity nowhere people know more about scientology than they know about lakeside when it comes to clear water we're not a mega church we're very excited about our little foyer but our whole church could fit in the lobbies of some churches in our community and that's okay that's ne- that's neither here nor there My point is this, and I'm certainly not talking about necessarily any churches in our community, but there are many ministries that are very, very big and very, very prominent that have nothing to do with the grace, mercy, and peace from Jesus Christ. If you just say the right things, people's ears are tickled and you can attract a crowd. Some false teachers are obvious because they never tell you you are an enemy of God and you need peace with him. They don't ever talk about the substitutionary atonement, Jesus dying on the cross in the place of sinners because people don't want to feel bad. They just want the cake and the coffee. And then a pep talk so I can go out tomorrow to my job and do a good job and I'll feel good about myself and then I'll come back and get recharged next week. That's worthless. That's lies. I believe that's part of the reason why Jesus said there's going to be many at the judgment saying, but Lord, Lord, didn't I? Didn't I? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know of a scarier passage in the Bible than that. So for today, I have to stop. We're already at the stopping point. But I'll just step back and say, when you're evaluating people, when you're evaluating ministries, do they love other believers? But not just the superficial love that comes if we both eat a donut that we like, we'll smile and we'll be happy with each other, but a love of the truth. One of the beautiful parts of this men's conference was it was about the truth. There was good fellowship and there was good food, but at the end of the day, you can have good fellowship and good food at a football game at a tailgate. But these men sacrificed a Friday night. Some of them drove from great distance to spend a Saturday sitting under the teaching of God's word. So a genuine believer loves the elect, but also you understand the gospel. Church has to be centered around the truths of the gospel and the fact that Sunday is just a gathering of former enemies of God who are praising the Lord that they're not his enemies anymore. That's what Lakeside is. It's what every true church should be, and that's what every true teacher should be driving towards. So, I'll decide by next week whether I come and finish this passage or whether I move on, but I pray that even just this is a reminder of what we have in Christ, but also a reminder of open our eyes. A lot of people have YouTube videos, a lot of people write books. And a lot of times it sounds good, but be careful. If it doesn't line up with the truths of God's word, run away. Run away. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this church, for the men who founded it many years ago, the families who started attending, and for your provision of a faithful teacher of your word like Pastor Steve, who has been here for so long in the trenches Faithfully, week after week, teaching us the truth. And Lord, we live in a time where more and more counterfeits are populating the airwaves, they're populating pulpits, they're filling up blogs and podcasts and books. Lord, give us discernment. Help us continually come back to your words, even simple passages like "The Greeting of Second John, that remind us that our faith is not just a common interest in a good life in America and finding the American dream. In fact, those things in most cases are an anathema. Lord, I pray that you'll help us understand the gospel and the centrality of the gospel for everything we do. Lord, we do thank you for the wonderful country that we live in. Lord, we are blessed I pray for this upcoming election. I pray that everyone in this class will be praying for the upcoming election. Lord, it's momentous. Those of us who hope in Jesus Christ keep hoping that at least some will stand within the gap and slow down the tide of misery that is engulfing our country. So Lord, we trust that you raise up leaders and you pull down leaders. We pray that you'll put the people in office that you want in office. We pray that many believers running would be elected who would stand for the truth. But Lord, we understand at the end of the day, the hope for our country is not found in just good laws and good legislators or a good president or a good governor or a good senator. The hope for our country comes when more and more of our fellow citizens will understand the grace and mercy and peace that's found only in Jesus. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all, and I look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next week.